Well, I have a confession to make this morning. I love football. And I love it at every level. So it's little league, junior high, high school, college, pro. Um, I like it. And uh, I like it a lot. And I liked to play it when the time in my life was that I could. And now I just like to watch it. Uh, I was in the first grade, Mrs. Knight's first grade class at Plaza Towers Elementary School. And Miss Knight put together these little booklets that she uh, wanted us to complete. And um, they were books about us. And one of the questions in the book was, what is your favorite show on television? And I put my answer to that question was inside the NFL. So for as long as I can remember, I have loved the game of football. It's fascinating. It's exciting to watch the offensive, defensive, and special teams come together as this coordinated and unified fighting machine with one goal in mind, and that is to win the game. In football, each particular member of a team brings their own skill and talents to their position. But can you imagine how comical and even tragic it would be if players brought their skills and talents to the wrong position? Imagine Tom Brady running out with the defense to play linebacker. Or Danny Amendola running out with the offense, but not to play slot receiver, but to play left tackle. Or Rob Gronkowski running out with the defense to play safety. That would be absurd. But when you put those guys in the right position, doing the right job, you have a team that just may win another Super Bowl. Well, what's true of football is equally true, if not more true, of the church, the body of Christ. When each member of the team, when each member of the family, when each member of the body of Christ is in the right place, doing the right job for the right reason, you just may have a body of people, a family of believers that might win their community to Christ and may make an impact for the glory of God and the honor of His Son, Jesus Christ. Every person serving in the right place, serving the right way, and serving for the right reasons are qualities of a healthy church. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to the New Testament. We're again going to be in the book of Ephesians uh, in chapter 4. And I want to speak this morning on qualities of a healthy church. Qualities of a healthy church. You know, oftentimes... Um, We don't think about church health. We almost think it happens naturally. And what happens when we disregard or don't think about our physical health, oftentimes our physical health begins to decline. Ultimately, we pay the price for not being mindful of taking care of our health. Well, in the church, oftentimes, we can just almost not think about it. Not uh, think about the health of a church. We think about you know, what the budget is, or we think about how many baptisms we've had, or we think about how many people are showing up uh, for worship service, or how many people are showing up for Bible study, or all kinds of different things. But oftentimes, we don't think about what is the state of our health as a body, or as a family, as a church body, what is the state of our health? And I would submit that God is interested in the healthiness of His church. And know this, not everything that is growing is healthy. But everything that is healthy will be growing. 
And it's important for us to realize that. Well, because God's interested, because God is concerned with the health of His church, He identifies some things in, he, in, uh, in Ephesians 4 that are qualities of a healthy church. We looked a couple of weeks ago at the first six verses. And in those six verses, we saw the subject of unity. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's all this emphasis on oneness and unity. And so we would have to derive from that, that unity or oneness is one of the qualities of a healthy church. Well, when you get down into verse 10, he's going to identify for us another quality of a healthy church. You get to verse 11, he's going to identify another quality of a healthy church. And then when you get to verse 14, he's going to identify another quality of a healthy church. And so this morning, we're going to look at the second quality that he identifies. It's right here in verses 7 through 10. And so let's look in these verses together. If it's physically possible, I invite you to stand with me today in honor and in reverence for the reading of God's holy and Aaron and Bible inspired word. Verse 7. Ephesians 4, the Bible says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself, also he who ascended, far above all the heavens, so that He may fill all things. Heavenly Father, I pray for Your Holy Spirit to sovereignly move in our midst this morning. I pray that He would sovereignly take Your Word and apply it to each and every one of our lives. I pray You would give us understanding of Your Word. I pray You would illuminate truth to our hearts. And God, I pray that we would not just be informed. I pray we'll be transformed. I pray that we would allow the Spirit of God to take the Word of God to make application into our life and that we will leave here today a changed people. Father, I want to pray this morning for those in South Texas and those who've been affected by these floods. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would supply their needs according to your riches and glory. And I pray, Lord, you would show each of us individually as well as all of us collectively how we need to be a part of that, whether that be giving or whether it be it would be in going. But God, we pray that you would uh, show yourself as Jehovah Jireh, as the one who will provide the needs of your people. And I pray, God, that this hurricane would provide opportunities for the gospel to be shared, and it would provide hearts that are more open to receive that message than they would have been had the hurricane not struck. God, we pray that there would be many who will come to Jesus as a result of what uh, uh, of what has happened in that part of our country. God, we, uh, we, we just lift them up to you this morning. And we pray for the work that's going on there and those who are a part of that work, who are on the ground now, doing the, the labor of fixing meals, of providing shelter, of, of helping people recover their, uh, their, their items. I just I pray that you, will, that you will guide in all of that process. Lord, we love you this morning. Help us to tune in to what your Spirit wants to say to us. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. So here in this great chapter of Scripture, Paul identifies qualities 
of a healthy church. And as we said, verses 1 through 6, we see the quality of unity. But we notice here another quality of a healthy church. And, and Paul tells us here that, the, that a healthy church will be characterized by diversity. It'll be characterized by unity, but also it'll be characterized by diversity. And that, at first it might seem like the diversity that Paul mentions here is at odds with this overarching theme of unity that we see interwoven throughout the first 16 verses of chapter 4. But the diversity that Paul mentions here actually contributes to the unity of the body because Christ giving different gifts to each one of us is for the purpose of enriching the whole. So there's this diversity within the body of Christ that he's given this gift and that gift and this gift and that gift and this gift and that gift to different people. And as people utilize those gifts, that diversity contributes to the enriching or to the unity of the entire body. Now, the key theme in verses 7 through 11 is Christ giving. Notice the first part of verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given. Notice the latter part of the verse. He speaks of Christ's gift. In verse 8, um, we see at the la- latter part of the verse that he gave gifts to men. And then when you get into verse 11, he says again, and he gave some. And so we see here this theme of Christ as a giver. Jesus is a giver. He's not a taker. He's not a manipulator. He's not coercive. He is a giver. And he's called us to be givers. But notice what it is that Paul mentions that Christ gives. He says he's given each one of us grace. That grace was given. Now, grace is not Paul's usual word when he's talking about spiritual gifts. But he uses the word this way in chapter 3. Uh, in verse 2, in chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, where it refers to God's grace that called Paul into ministry toward the Gentiles. It focuses on God's undeserved favor that took Paul from being a persecutor of the church to being an apostle and a preacher of the gospel. And so Paul saw his role in the body of Christ as being a gift of God's grace. That the only reason he was at this place in his life was because of God's grace on his life. And here Paul says, this grace that's been given to me, that's called me into service, this grace has been given to each one of us. Been given to each one of us. Now when we think about grace, it's important that each one of us make sure that we've received God's grace and salvation. Paul's already stated in chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's a gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. If you've not been rescued from God's judgment, which is what it means to be saved, because you've received God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ as, as the sufficient substitute for your sin, then nothing else I'm going to say in this message will apply to you. You must receive God's gift of of eternal life before you receive His gracious spiritual gift that enables you to serve Him. You must receive the grace of salvation 
before you receive a spiritual gift. If you think that you can earn salvation by serving God, you do not understand the gospel. We cannot earn salvation. We can't serve enough. We can't give enough. We can't sacrifice enough to ever merit, gain, or earn salvation. The only way we will ever obtain salvation is to receive it by faith and God, by His grace, grants it in our life. And so if you've never experienced God's saving grace, I would plead with you this morning that before you allow another breath to come into your lungs, that you would cry out to Jesus Christ and ask Him to forgive your sin and be your Savior and be your Lord. Cry out to Jesus. No greater decision that you can make. And dear friend, it doesn't matter if you're a church member. It doesn't matter if you've been sprinkled or baptized by immersion. It doesn't matter um, if you are a charter member of a church. It just, none of that matters. If you've never trusted Christ, you need to come to Jesus. Trust Him by faith. And if you have received His saving grace, then Christ has given you a gift to use in serving Him. You know, when Jesus Christ left this earth, because you remember, He rose from the dead. When when He ascended back to the Father, when He left the earth, He did not leave us empty-handed. He didn't just leave us here to figure it out on our own. Um, He he didn't leave us empty-handed. As the ascended Lord, the Bible says here that He poured out His gifts to each one of us, His children. So Jesus saved you and me, not just from sin... He saved us for service. It was Charles Stanley that said, if Jesus Christ saved you merely to take you to heaven, then He would have been better served to have saved you, killed you, and took you to heaven. But He didn't do that. Jesus didn't just save you or me to just take us to heaven. He saved us. He begins this work of sanctification in our life, places within us a spiritual gift because He saves us to serve. We saw it in Ephesians chapter 2. We saw those verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Those great, grace you're saved through faith. But then you get to verse 10, and what does He say? We're His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so He tells us there, hey, He saved us from our sin, but He saved us to serve. He's given us a spiritual gift. Verse 7, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. I want to note four things this morning about this spiritual gift that's been given to every believer by Jesus Christ. First of all, every believer has been given a spiritual gift. Four chapters in the New Testament talk about spiritual gifts. The significant thing about that is that every chapter that talks about spiritual gifts emphasizes that every believer has at least one spiritual gift. So here's what I know this morning as I stand in this pulpit. I'm looking at a bunch of gifted people. And gifted by grace. Not by education, not by study. You've been gifted by grace. We've been given a spiritual gift. Romans 12, which is one of the passages that talk about spiritual gifts, verse 3, it says that God has allotted to each 
a measure of faith. And then he goes on to talk about some various spiritual gifts or uh, motivational gifts that God has given. And you get into chapter 12, Romans 12, verse 6. He says, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace that's given us. And so not only am I looking at a group of gifted people, I'm looking at a a multifaceted group of gifted people. Because not everybody has the same gift. I'm looking at some people who have the gift of hospitality. Looking at some people, you've got the gift of teaching. Looking at other people, you have the gift of giving. Looking at some, you have the gift of mercy. Others, you've got the gift of leadership. Others, gift of administration. But whatever your gift is, and that's not a... Uh, exhaustive list, but whatever gift you have, you've been given that gift by grace to implement in using at serving the Son of God within the body of Christ. And so Paul is saying in Romans 12, much the same thing as he says in Ephesians 4, 7, and that is we've all received a gift and whatever we have been given, we have been given by God's grace and that His grace varies according to His sovereign purpose. God gave you the gift you have because that's the gift He wanted you to have. And think about this. We acknowledge that God is wise, all wise, that He's, you know, church word, omniscient. So he knows all things. He's never caught off guard. He's never taken by surprise. That God is perfectly righteous. That he does everything. Uh, he does all things well. That he's never made a mistake. He's never sinned. And all of that. And then sometimes we look at the circumstance of our life. Or we look at the spiritual gift that we have been given. And we think, God, are you sure you know what you're doing? But God, in His all-knowing wisdom, knew exactly the gift that you needed to serve Him in the body of Christ where He was going to put you. He knows. In 1 Corinthians 12, verses 8 through 10, and then in verses 28 through 30, Paul again lists two, uh, he gives two separate lists of spiritual gifts. And, And just a side note here. None of the lists that are given in Scripture, none of those are exhaustive. So he mentioned some in one place, some in another place, some in another place. He wasn't trying to cover every spiritual gift that could possibly be given. That that wasn't the purpose of why Paul includes those in three separate writings. He's just trying to help us understand, hey, there's a variety of gifts within the body of Christ. And both before and after these lists that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 12, he states that each one of us has been given a gift. So again, we see that emphasis. In verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 12, he says, But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. In verse 11, he says, But one and the same Spirit works all these things to distributing to each one individually just as he wills. And so twice there in that chapter, he mentions that each one is given a gift. And then Peter, he says, hey, yeah, you know, I, I can write about spiritual gifts. Spirit inspires him, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. And he groups all of the spiritual gifts under two different main headings. They're serving gifts and they're speaking gifts. So just think about it in that fashion. Has God given me 
serving gifts or has He given me speaking gifts? Verse 10 of 1 Peter 4 begins, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So you hear the admonition there? Employ it in serving one another. So if you receive God's gracious gift of salvation, you've also received this gracious spiritual gift to use for His glory. Now why is it that over and over again, Paul's emphasizing this fact that each one of us have been given a spiritual gift? Because Paul understood it would be very easy for people to sit back and look and say, well, of course, Paul, you've got a spiritual gift. Look at you, you're a Paul. You write all of these letters. You've planted all of these churches. You've gone on all of these missions, Paul. I'm not you. I don't have a spiritual gift. But friend, that is not the case. Nobody is left out. Each one of us is given a spiritual gift. And so whether you're a young person or whether you're an older person, whether you're a man or whether you're a woman... Whether you've been saved for five days or whether you've been saved for five decades. If you know Christ, you've been given this spiritual gift by His grace. You say, well, pastor, I I don't know what my spiritual gift is. How can I find it? Oftentimes people would say, well, take a spiritual gift inventory. You know, those are probably fine and good, but... I'm. I would say there is a danger that they can be misleading. I personally believe that the greatest way you can identify your spiritual gift is begin to serve. Begin to serve in some fashion, whether, I mean, maybe an usher, maybe a greeter, uh, maybe you want to serve in a nursery, maybe you're going to uh, serve on a, a fellowship team, or you're going to serve in some way, find it and just begin to serve. And, and if that's not where your gift is, and you, you go somewhere else. But identify the area where you seem to experience great joy and where people seem to um, to observe that. Observe you utilizing your gift, serving area. They, they see that and they begin, man, God is just, it's unbelievable. And when you get done, you feel like, this is what God created me to do. When you, when you come to the point that you begin to serve, and when you get done, you feel like this is what God created me to do. You just found your spiritual gift. And we talk about, you know, when Jesus saves us, that He gives us a purpose. Well, that purpose is oftentimes wrapped up in that spiritual gift. And as you utilize that spiritual gift, you find out why God made you. So we notice, number one, that Christ gives everybody a gift. Every believer's got a spiritual gift. Number two, Christ distributes them according to His sovereign purpose. He says here, but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. John MacArthur explains, the Lord has measured out the exact proportion of each believer's gift. Jesus, once you're saved... He doesn't bring you into this storeroom of spiritual gifts and go, look at all this. Pick one. 
That's not what he does. God, by his sovereign, according to the measure of Christ's gift, God, according to his sovereign grace, decides in his divine wisdom what gift you need to serve his body and his world for his glory, and he gives you that gift. I confess that sometimes I'm jealous of those who have certain gifts that I don't have. And if God would have brought me into a storeroom and said, look at all this, pick the one you want, I probably would have picked a different one than He gave me. But God didn't give me the gifts that I admire in other people. But you and I have to choose to bow before His sovereignty and accept the gift that He's given us. We have to do that because God sovereignly, divinely, all-knowingly has given us exactly what He wants us to have. So a second thing we learn about spiritual gifts from this text is Christ distributes these gifts according to His sovereign purpose. Number three, since Christ gave these gifts, we must use them as He directs. We use them as He directs. He's the sovereign Lord. He's distributed these gifts according to His purpose. And so thus we're accountable to Him. And man, that's not something we want to hear in this day and time, is it? But because Christ has given us this gift, we are now accountable to Him to use the gift that He has given as He has directed. Contrary to popular opinion, there is no distinction in the New Testament between clergy and laity. There's no distinction. Now it's true that some are supported so that they can work full-time in various ministries, and some are given leadership gifts so that they can equip the rest of the saints for ministry, and we'll talk about that next week. But every Christian, and hear me really close, every Christian is in the ministry. Every Christian is in the ministry. In the sense that every Christian has a spiritual gift and we will give an account to God for how we use it. We've been given a gift. Matthew 25, parable of the talents. There is this landowner, this um, estate owner who is going on a journey and he entrusts talents which are not not abilities but a, a measurement of money in that day. He entrusts different amounts of talents to three different servants. He gives five talents to one. He gives um, two talents to another. And he gives one talent to another. And, And the man who had five, he took his talents and he went and used them. And he gained five more talents. The one who had two, he went and utilized his. He gained two more. But the one who had one, who was given one talent, he took his talent and he went and he buried it. And when the master returns and he calls those servants into account, this one with the one talent comes back and he presents the one talent back to the master. And he says, man, I knew that you were a hard man and and all that. And so I took this talent and I went and I buried it. And here is what is yours. And the The master, he looks at this man and he says, you wicked and lazy slave. And he sentences him to outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so he he condemns this lazy servant to hell. Two observations 
from that well-known parable. Number one, there is a danger. Hear me close. There is a danger for those who have not been given much to bury what they've been given. There's a danger for those who maybe didn't get the most... um, That's not a good word. There's a danger for those who didn't get a gift that is um, up front or out front to bury the gift that they were given. And if you think this morning, I can't do much for the Lord, so I won't do anything, you ought to reevaluate. You ought to reevaluate. Because Jesus said about the one who buried the talent because he didn't have much, he said he was a wicked and lazy slave. So, reconsider. A second observation. Not to serve the Lord in any capacity is an indication that you're not truly saved. If the, now, notice, I mean, in, in, you can look at it. Matthew chapter 25. He sentences that man to hell. So it's an indication if we do nothing for God's Son that we've never truly been saved. If the one talent guy would have used the talent he was given, he would have shown that he was a true servant of the Master. But by not using his talent at all, and by spending his time on his own selfish pursuits, he showed that he was not a true servant. And so each one of us need to carefully consider, what gift has God entrusted to me, and how does He want me to use it for His kingdom purpose? How does He want me to use it? I've got the gift of hospitality. How does God want me to use this gift for His intended purpose? If I have the gift of administration, how does God want me to use this gift for His intended purpose? If I have the gift of mercy, how does God want me to use this gift for His intended purpose? If I've got the gift of teaching, how do you want me, God, to use this gift for Your intended purpose? It's well been said. That only what you and I do for Christ will last. And here's the danger. We will give our life to doing stuff for stuff that will not last. And yet we will not give ourselves to the one who lives forever and will not do what will last. So we need to realize that God has given us this gift to utilize, and He's going to call us into account one day for how we used it. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you've never read 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 15, I want to encourage you, jot down that reference, go home this afternoon, and read those verses. Because the bottom line is this. You and I are one day going to stand before God, and we're going to be held accountable. We are going to be held accountable for how we use the spiritual gifts that God has given to us. Fourth thing to notice about spiritual gifts. Using your gifts to serve Jesus is an undeserved privilege. It's an undeserved privilege. Paul emphasizes that by repeating these terms. Grace, given, and gift. Because our spiritual gifts were given to us by grace... There's no place for boasting. 
No place for boasting. Paul asked rhetorically, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you act like you didn't receive it? So whatever gift you have, it's by grace. And the opportunity you have to serve the Lord is an undeserved privilege. Um, serving in a different, uh, when we served in a different area, um, there was a time where we began to interact with this particular family and, uh, and we knew they were kind of on the brink. They were in a church, but you know, they were, they were just kind of barely hanging on. And they decided that they were going to go to another church. And so they did. They went to another church and you know, they had way more to offer, and it was in a completely different environment. And Jen was talking to the lady of the home, and she says, you know, I just, you know, we just love it because there's just not that spirit of legalism. It's just not legalistic. And, you know, that, that, that term always kind of makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up because I always think, what do they mean by legalism? Because if it is true legalism, then that's not good. But sometimes we call stuff legalism that's not legalism. So we began to inquire, well, what do you mean by this legalism? And ultimately, it came down to the fact of this. We can go to this other church and we can be, we can be ministered to. But if we stay in the church we're in, we're going to be expected to minister. And so they opted for this option because it was all about them and their comfort and convenience and preference and all of that kind of stuff. We don't want to do anything for anybody else. We just want everybody else to do everything for us. And that's killing the church. We want to sit back and, Jeff, I dare you, bless me. God of heaven. Or step back, Mike, I dare you, bless me. Is it going to be a good one today? Or I, Sunday school teacher, boy, you, you know, hey, let's see, if you, let's see if you studied this week. And on and on we could go. God did not save you. He did not save me. So we could sit around and let everybody else do everything else for us. He saved us so that we would use the spiritual gift that He's put within us to serve other people and make a difference for the cause of Christ in Muskogee, Oklahoma, and to the ends of the earth. God forbid that we raise the standard to a biblical standard and say that every saved person has been saved so that they can serve, so that they can give their life in some fashion to make a difference in the lives of other people for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. Dear friend, as I best understand my Bible, there's only going to be one institution that's going to be in heaven, and that's going to be the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything else is passing away. Everything else is going to rubble. But there is one institution that will stand in, the, in, in heaven. And that is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So friend, don't shy away. Do not uh, make excuses, but find out what it is I can do to advance this institution, this organization. What can I do to advance this organism that God has blessed and He will preserve through all eternity? I'm glad I got that out. (laughs) We we have got to get away from consumer church. Got to get away from that. We we wonder, we sit back and we wonder, man, you know, the church seems to be declining. And I'm not talking about our church. I'm talking about the church. Okay, big church, big C church. You know, church seems to be declining and, you know, less people are interested in the gospel. And, and we wonder why that is. Well, I would say that a big reason why that is is because too many Christians are sitting on their blessed assurance instead of uh, utilizing the spiritual gift that they've been given for the cause of Christ to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ. Say, man, now you're just being ugly. No, I'm not being ugly. I'm just just sharing what I believe is going on. I mean, you, you cannot justify biblically getting saved and doing nothing. You can't justify it. If you want to, I mean, do your best. I mean, I would just challenge you. Go home, get your Bible, find the passages of Scripture that justify, uh, I got saved, I got my fire insurance, and I'm just going to sit around and do nothing for the kingdom the rest of my life. If you can justify that biblically, I stand corrected and I'll stand and apologize. But you can't justify it. You can't justify it. We ought to be busy about the work of the kingdom. Verses 8 through 10. In verse 7, the emphasis is on Christ's giving. Verses 8, 9, and 10, the emphasis is on Christ as a conqueror. It's a reference to Psalm 68. Some believe that it's especially a reference to verse 19 of Psalm 68. But the emphasis here is on Christ as a conqueror. And the reason that Paul includes this here. In verses 8, 9, and 10, because it seems a bit parenthetical, I believe the reason that he includes it here is because Christ conquering justifies his ability to give. The incarnation of Christ and the ascension of Christ are evidence that God has come and he's rescued his people as a victorious king. Now, he says here, and I believe these verses are taken out of context by a lot of people, even in some creeds that are out there. It says, he who descended is himself also he who ascended. And there is a variety of debate. And next Sunday night, we'll talk some about verses 8, 9, and 10 more in detail. But I, I personally believe that when he's talking about descending there, he's speaking about the fact that Christ came incarnate, that he died and was buried. I don't believe Christ descended further than the grave. 
And if you want to substantiate that he did, you only got one verse of Scripture. And I don't think you can rightly interpret it. He descended. He came to earth. He lived as a man. He died. He was buried. He descended. But after he descended, he ascended conqueror. And when he ascended, it was testimony that he had overcome death, hell, and the grave, and the devil. He had overcome all of it. And now, having conquered all of these foes, death, hell, the grave, the devil, now he shares all the spoils of that victory with those who come to faith in him. It says, latter part of verse 8, and he gave gifts to men. It says in the latter part of verse 10, he has ascended far above all the heavens so that he may fill all things. So it's, again, it's speaking of the fact that Christ is giving to his people and he's giving to them out of the spoils of the victory that they did not win, but that he won on their behalf. You see, friend, the only reason you and I will ever overcome death, hell, and the grave is because Jesus overcame it for us. And we get to share in His victory. Jesus is the ascended Lord. He led captive the powers of evil that attacked, conquered, and enslaved us. And in so doing, and because of that, He is, listen, latter part of verse 10, far above all the heavens. He's far above. And He fills all, and He gives gifts to all. What a Savior we have. What a Savior we have. Each one has, who has received God's saving grace has received grace and gifts enabling you to serve Him. Man, woman, mature, not as mature. Everybody's been, who's been saved by grace has received a grace for serving. Question, are you utilizing that gift? Are you serving the Lord? Are you using the gift that He's given you, or have you buried it? If you are using it, can I encourage you to be steadfast and immovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord? To not grow weary in well-doing, for in due time you'll reap if you faint not. Keep on keeping on. And we've talked about this in times past. Sometimes our service to the Lord can seem unrewarding, but understand that God will reward those who diligently seek Him and serve Him. But if you're not, if you're not serving the Lord, would you make a commitment to the Lord to start? Would you make a commitment to the Lord to start? Serving the Lord is an undeserved privilege. You say, well, you know, I don't really have a lot to give. I, I don't really feel like I have an, a lot to offer. Don't be like the one with the one talent that buried it. God's given you by His grace and in His sovereignty what He wanted you to have. And if you will be faithful, God will be faithful to honor it. Hey, here's, here's a verse that we don't normally think about when we think about serving the Lord in spiritual gifts. But what does the Bible say? He who's been given much, much will be expected. But he who's given little, little will be expected. 
And he who cannot be faithful with a little won't be faithful with a lot. So maybe, maybe, listen, are you listening? Maybe God's giving you a little now to see if you'll be faithful with a little. And if you'll be faithful with a little, then God in time will give you a lot. But he wants to see, are you going to be faithful? Are you going to serve? Or are you going to bury the talent? So I want to invite you to make a commitment to the Lord today. That I am going to serve the Lord. Say, where am, where am I going to do that? Where am I going to serve the Lord? Well, I've got good news. We've got a lot of areas of service. Next Sunday, made available for you, will be these sheets. We pass them out every year called Survey of Service. And it's got a catalog of ways in which you could serve the Lord. Sing in the choir, be a greeter, work on a hospitality team, work with a fellowship team, sew sew, um, items to be given away for people who need those things. I mean, just all kinds of different ways you can serve the Lord. So you make a commitment today and you begin to pray, God, show me where it is I need to start. And then you get one of those next week and you just see where it is that God would have you to serve. Where, where can I start? And just mark it. Just make commitment to the Lord. But you, you ought to make the commitment today. That, Lord, I'm going to serve you. I'm putting my yes on the table. Here's a blank check, Lord, for you to fill in. And then next Sunday, I'm going to take one of those sheets, and I'm going to sign up. But my next question is, have you received saving grace? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ by faith? You can't serve enough to gain salvation. But the good news is you don't have to. Jesus did all the work. And if you'll just receive it, He'll give it to you as a gift. But you've got to trust Christ. And if you've never trusted Him, can I invite you before you walk out these doors to give your life to Jesus? Would you pray with me this morning? We'll bow our heads, close our eyes together. If you've never trusted Christ, in a moment we're going to stand and we're going to sing. Brother Adrian... Shane, myself, will be here in the front. If you've never trusted the Lord, I want to invite you to come. Come to any of us. We'd love to share with you this morning how you can trust Jesus as your Savior. Incredibly simple, but it is the most important decision of your life. Only way we escape God's judgment, only way we gain entrance into heaven is by trusting Jesus Christ. Only way your sin is ever forgiven, your guilt removed, is by trusting Jesus Christ. If you've never trusted Him, I want to invite you to come.